Hello and welcome to Startup Dads. I'm Amrit Santhirasanan, CEO of a high-grade startup, father to a young daughter. Join me as I speak to ultra-successful parent founders, venture capitalists and investors to take a look at the world through their eyes and uncover the lives, drives and strategies of parents and business. We're here to show you that you can grow a thriving business and happy family at the same time. This week on Startup Dads, our guest is Marvin Liao. Marvin's had a multi-decade journey spanning big tech, VC and angel investing, alongside raising his daughter, who's now 12. This is a high-energy show covering how technology has transformed education, the power of personal monopoly, and thoughtful versus naive optimism. As always, it's great to hear from you all, so do leave me a comment or send a DM on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. Alternatively, reach me on LinkedIn at Amrit Santharasenan, and I promise to get back to you. All right, let's get into the episode. I jokingly talk about myself being the Forrest Gump of Silicon Valley, where I'm like, anyone's asking me for career advice, it's just like, it's just like I had no plan, right? Like, I just kind of was lucky, if I'm honest. I worked my ass off when I got there, but I was like lucky. And so there was no real plan where I really have optimized my life of just like working with like awesome people, working on stuff that I'm super interested in or feel like has impact that, that I care personally about, right? And when all those factors change, it's time to go. You know, when I joined Yahoo, it was a very different company. It was sub three, like I joined Yahoo in middle of 2001. It was like 3,000 people, right? You know, when I left Yahoo in end of 2011, beginning of 2012, it was like 15,000 people after we fired like five or 6,000 people, right? So it's just like, oh it was just a very different organization and company and, and it's just a very different stage, right? And so by then, um, you know, I use this analogy of, of just sort of like, you know, commandos and infantry and policemen, it was very clearly like at the policeman stage. And I'm more of like a late commando, early infantry person. And so it's just like the the whole place just changes. And and so I don't know if there was any real forethought around there. It's like, yeah, okay, this time to go, right? <laughs> like, it's like, it's not fun anymore. Like it's lucrative and everything, but just like, you, you know, you money's important, but like after a certain point, it's not that important, right? Time is probably For way sure. more important. A hundred percent. And I think you're being incredibly modest. And I think when our our listeners read about you, they will see that. But I suppose one thing that you said, which really struck me is I had no plan, but I wanted to work really hard on things that I was passionate about with super smart people. And, you know, one of the things I think we're seeing emerging, and I'm interested to hear about how you frame this to your daughter, because your daughter is, you say 12 now? 12 now, yeah. And I suppose, you know, when you give her, when you think about giving her advice, it feels like what you described there is a, a pretty good plan. It's worked out quite well for you. I don't know what your thoughts are on The world that they're entering is so different, right? And so one of the reasons, um, you know, like she's been in public school, she went to private school last year um, in Taiwan. So we escaped the U.S. Uh, what a disaster zone. But anyways, we escaped the U.S. last year. At least they did and I stayed. Um, and so she did the private school thing and, and actually she's being homeschooled um, this year. And it's, she's thriving. Um, and I actually think like we're entering a world where if you think about sort of the world that we used to be in, right? Like I think our world, which is like, mm. everything's changed since 2020. And so this idea where mm. it's just like the, the educational system prior was very much about like being a good foot soldier, being prepared for sort of like this industrial age company where I actually think people who are homeschooled actually have an edge because you're learning for the sake of learning where, you, you know, like, Remember the old, old when we went through school, it's like memorizing things, right? Now you have Google, right? You have your smartphone. Yeah. So it's actually about asking the right questions. 
And also school right now is like you're held back by the dumbest kids. And frankly, you might be in my situation. I'm like, I'm pretty good in history and English, but like pretty bad in sciences. So I was a dumb kid holding it, you know, the smart kids back. And I think with homeschooling, where it's just like they get to work at their pace, they're self-starting. And it's just like it's so much better for it. The, the, the curriculum can be adjusted for them. And so my daughters really thrive where it's like, look, if you get everything done by noon, you're done. You can do whatever you want, right? And, and you can customize, you know, she's she just learned to become just much, you know, taking the initiative herself. Like how many students do you know that are like straight A's that end up doing really well in business? No, they end up being good bureaucrats and they end up being good government, like check the box people, right? And so I think the world has changed now. You're looking for people who can take the initiative. I don't know when I reflect myself on because of the world that I've moved into, because I started in the city, like you say, surrounded by lots of people who were so super smart, you know, straight A's at university, but following an incredibly linear path, a path, you know, that it's got tight guardrails. Yep. And actually, when I look at the skills required of me now, compared to the skills required of me uh, back then, they're completely different. You can look at the kind of dislocation in the world as uh, th- there is a framing where that actually that's more friendly to creating more creative entrepreneurial people. You know, yeah, you you have to be, right? Because I think this idea of just like, here's a playbook, go execute the playbook. But the problem is when the playbook is very well known, right? So you have these like clear passwords, like the path to making a lot of money is being a hedge fund person or being an investment banker or management consultant. Or just like there's a very clear sort of playbook. But then the problem is everybody knows a playbook and then you're basically competing. And so the only way that you compete is like you're a commodity. So I'm either work for a lot less money or I just work harder. Right. And so, like, you got to work hard no matter what. But, you know, like, it's without sounding sort of Peter Thielian of just like, you know, like the, the reality is that you, you're ultimately trying to figure out a monopoly for yourself. Right. Like competitions for losers, like you know, his quotes, because it's mm. like you're, you're basically playing like games where everyone else is playing the same game. It's like, how do you win? Right. So it's like, how do you find your niche? And I, th- I do think as an entrepreneur, you have to find your niche you know, from a career perspective, you don't need to be an entrepreneur, but you need to be entrepreneurial to go and figure out your niche, right? And so this is why I tell startups, like, what's your positioning? Where do you fit in the marketplace? Who are you going after? And being very, very clear about that and thinking that through, right? Obviously, that'll change with feedback and with market demand and whatnot. But you should know, because if your goal is just like, I'm going to be cheaper, faster than the other person, I'm like, well, is that really a competitive edge in the long run? Yeah taking that startup mindset and applying it to, like you say, the person as a, as a business of one, almost. We're all businesses of one, right? It's just like, you know, I love the Jay-Z quote. I'm not a businessman. I'm a business comma man, right? And yeah. I, we have to think this way. Like everything's changed. It's funny. I was reading High Output Management yeah. last night, the classic Andy Grove uh, book on management. And it was really interesting because the book was written in 1983 and it was talking a lot about the dislocation caused in the work by globalization and the internet, right? And, you know, back then, email and globalization were the, was a dislocating force. And he was talking exactly about what you've just said. He was just saying, you know, you are a business of one and the com- competition for you, you know, you, uh, you you put it very eloquently. It's like, you can commoditize yourself. You can do that if you want. Yeah, but then you become a substitute. Yeah, and there'll be people in other parts of the world who are hungrier, you know, able to work harder, whatever it is. And they're going to they're, they're gonna be more valuable in this commodity world than you. Their price is going to be higher. And I, as I think about that, you know, something that was in my mind was actually, we're seeing a very similar, a very, very similar world now. You know, you look at the kind of the true kind of power of the internet being not absolutely everywhere, but constructively global. 
and the pandemic have shifted us our mindsets to being able to you know anyone to be able to work anywhere it's it's very interesting or starlink when did you see starlink show up right where just like you're going to have a whole bunch of places that previously didn't have good internet connections be like, wow, like this is going to be a good place. And, and so I, I actually think like the, the, it's a very dangerous place to be middle class now, especially this time of age, because you have one side globalization, which has been in full effect for the last like 20, 30 years on one side. And then you have the other side, which is really technology, software eating the world, right? Software eating jobs, mm-hmm. where if you think about like the point of just like, the longevity of most big companies now, it used to be 50, 60 years, like 50 years ago. Now it's like 15 years. And what's the biggest cost structure? It's real estate and people, right? The real estate piece is now slowly dissipating. Mm-hmm. Next yeah. one is people. And you're like, wait a minute, why do I need you when either I'm going to either outsource your job or I'll outsource your job or I'll, I'll find like software to go and do it. Like you're seeing a lot of software basically eat jobs. That's, what, that's literally what technology does. Technology eats people okay, there's going to be potentially sort of positive and negative effects, all this stuff, but like there's going to be a lot of pain in the short term. And I I don't understand people who think like, well, you know, I'm just going to take the safe route and get a job, right? I'm like, just literally go and do a Google alerts on like layoffs or corporate layoffs or mass layoffs where it's like you will get dinged every morning or just like, holy crap, like this company's firing 10,000 people or this company's firing 5,000. Like, I'm like, I get it. If you are an employee in the 80s where that contract is still fairly strong, it's 2021. Like, where have you been hiding your head, right? Like, you know, you're, you've had your head in your ass. If you don't, like, if you trust that the company is going to be like, let me take care of me. Like, it's such a high risk bet, right? Where, you know, I talk about this in, in previous, um, you know, writing where it's just like, what do you think is risky, right? Like, you work at a company, you have one income source versus you have a company yourself, you're a business yourself, you have four income sources. You go, which one is riskier, Right. If you you know, just look at the math. Right. Like, I think the answer should be very obvious. But like, why do people think that that is like the, the job, the corporate job is actually like the, the safer one? So it sounds rather like it's a slam dunk. You want your daughter to or you, you think it's a good idea for your daughter to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want her to do what, you know, obviously whatever makes her happy. But I'm also the view where just like I think in your 20s, like for a lot of people career wise, you don't know anything. Right. Like you literally don't know anything. And so all, all you can do really as a parent is just like, look, I'm going to expose her to as much stuff as I possibly can. Right. Like, you know, give her sort of ability to work in many different countries if she can, ability to sort of speak multiple languages, even though technology will probably, you know, remove that. But it's just good to understand other languages and be comfortable in different cultures and and just let her try a lot of different things. Right. Lots of different you know, habits. Um, let her really, really appreciate and gain a, a love of learning and reading. And if she has that and sort of good drive and and actually just good sort of, I would say, consumer habits, these are all the things I'm like trying to teach her. Like, this is how you think about investing. This is a value of money, right? Like she has to go and do a crappy job, even though I think a lot of this stuff will be automated by the time she gets to sort of like high school. Whatever. But like, I want her to work at like, no offense to folks, but work at a McDonald's or work at a Burger King, like literally understand how hard it is to make money, right? Of just like have a crappy mm-hmm. job because, you know, I do think there's a lot you can learn from that, right? Like go to really, really poor countries and do some mission work and some volunteer work, do stuff that really opens yourself up from the the real, I would say, sort of privileged bubble. I hate that term privilege, right? But like to some extent, like, you know, I'm fairly privileged, right? That privileged bubble mm-hmm. that she's grown up in. Um, I don't think that's healthy for in the long run. Your point speaks to the power of perspective 
right? Which I think is something we're seeing and everyone's talking a lot. I mean, Facebook are in the news. They can't get out of the news. Oh, what a disaster. Oh my God, this is a disaster. <laughs> they just can't get out of the news, you know. For uh, and you know, they are victims very much. You, you know, victims is probably the quite the wrong word. I don't think anyone feels particularly sorry for Mark Zuckerberg, but you know, they're a function of having two billion users. And you think a little bit about what's actually happened with the world we're in, where communication lines are so incredibly polarized now, and the power of perspective, how important it is when actually, you know, you've got a machine algorithmically designed to drive engagement, uh, and it's going to feed you things that you like to see. And it's actually really important to read and see and experience things actually that you disagree with. And and also, I just think travel is so important, right? Like obviously last year and a half has been challenging for travel. But one of the things that I do think that is really important for travel is just like going and meeting people like in other countries. And so I've been very, very lucky. I still travel a lot and I still see a lot of, you know, I've been to like countries like Iran. I spent a lot of time in Russia and all these other places. And, and, you know, despite the political things, at the end of the day, like we all kind of want the same things. We want our kid to grow up happy. We want our kid to sort of like be fulfilled. We're all the same. We all want the same things. And I do think sometimes when you grow up in this sort of fairly privileged bubble like Silicon Valley, I think you have to get out and see sort of the other part of the world and appreciate, number one, you appreciate a lot more of what you have, but I think also sort of helps you think through the impact and helps you think through like work, you know, work is really important, right? Like this is this is something I've really learned. It's just like everyone begs on work. I'm like, yeah, because like you haven't worked on stuff that you haven't been thoughtful or you haven't really gone and taken the time to go and find something to work on that you that really matters to you personally, or at least develop a habit that you really care about or some charity you support, like find something that you're really, that you feel you have impact on. I think too many people just think about the paycheck and that's a, that's a really sad way to live. And you're like, oh, you're so privileged. I'm like, yeah, you know, I struggled. I, it took me a while. Like it took me two and a half decades to get here. It wasn't easy. And I'm very conscious of that. Like in some ways I want my kid to have an easier path, but then is that really the right thing? So I really wrestle with that. Where just like, I don't wanna give her everything. Um, and then she sort of doesn't learn a lot of the lessons. Um, but at the same time, like I also don't wanna like, well, I don't know if she should go through and make all the s- same stupid mistakes that I did, which is also kind of, a, so I'm trying to figure out the balance. I haven't figured that out yet. No, it's super difficult. I mean, lots of people, and again, you'll know this, lots of people in venture capital talk about the best founders just being damaged just the right amount, uh, you know, and it's actually like that art of, you want your kids to have had a little bit of hardship, right? The right amount to to trigger the hunger and drive them. There's a high correlation, I think, between hardship and drive, right? I mean, you don't know how many times I just like was close to broke. And actually, frankly speaking, most of the times like due to my own stupidity, right? And my own ignorance um, and, and just like mismanagement. Like I go one, two, four or five times at least. I mean, at least I'm like the rest, maybe they're so painful. I'm just like suppressing it. But like the the, <laughs> the, the, the level of stupidity I look back of just how I've managed my life financially where I'm just like, what was I doing? One thing that really sticks out about you, and actually I see this in lots of super smart investors and founders that I've had the privilege to talk to, is that reading and writing are things that are super important to them. So could you talk to me about the role of, I suppose, reading in your life, because in both as an investor and a parent, because you touched on things you want your daughter to read and learn about. So one of the things that I was very fortunate, so my, my parents are academics, and my mom was a librarian, had a master's in, in library sciences. That's a real thing. <laughs> and my, my, my father was a professor. And so I was always surrounded by books. And 
I grew up in a Canada that didn't have a lot of Asians, right? So it's just like, you never really stood, you know, like we stood out. Well, I was Mr. Kung Fu Man, right? You know, obviously that changed after 88, which is a wave of all the Hong Kongese and Taiwanese and mainland Chinese came over. So now I could arguably call it Chinada, right? But it's like back then it was like, you know, you're, you're the minority. And so trying to sort of fit into sort of like white Canadian culture was just like trying to figure that out. So you have identity stuff and and never really felt I fit in. That's why I left um, so soon after I graduated university. I'm like, I'm, I'm out of here, right? Um, but books is always a solve for me. Like, I always love books. You know, my parents were very supportive where it's like, they didn't let me buy a lot of toys, but like books are like, yeah. And so that's what I did. I just, I have a huge, you know, when I left Canada, um, I had maybe like close to 3,000 books in my library at that time. I've always enjoyed reading, um, whether it's like history, philosophy, business, anything. It just, it's the best, right? You know, you're in a commute, you read. I live in San Francisco and had to commute down to Sunnyvale. That's an hour, hour and a half every day, right? Like one way. So you just, you just read a lot. So it's, it's been great for me. You get different perspectives and it's just like, it's incredibly calming for me. But can I ask you to shoot from the hip and talk some transformative books that you've read that maybe our listeners may not know about? Um, you know, the, the 80-20 principle by Cook, um, the Art of Worldly Wisdom by Baltasar Gratian. Um, more recently, like this book that came out in 99, I didn't read it until 2017, was A Sovereign Individual. Um, great book by Reese Mogg. And, you know, some people hate it. He's like, this guy's a libertarian asshole. I'm like, no, not really. Like, just read the book and make your own decision. Um, the Fourth Economy by Davison. Um, that book was just like, wow. Like, just like really um, was just... I still think about it. I actually still think about like, they were so spot on about we're entering this entrepreneurial age. That's really driven a lot of the, the how I see the world right now. Uh, those are the ones I probably sort of stand out the most. Um, you know, Think and Grow Rich obviously is, is always like the classic. Um, Tony Robbins, um, you know, it's one of those things, I grew up in Canada, where, like I really, they're so skeptical about everything. And you come down to the US and like, well, like we're big Tony Robbins fans. So I had this like weird dichotomy. and. I think, you know, there's certain aspects of it that are actually, like, good. I've had to unlearn a lot of bad mental habits coming out of Canada. We've talked about this a lot on the show, that optimism and kind of openness are just such critical success factors for in entrepreneurialism. And I think, you know, someone was saying that it's the fuel that they that fires them. Yeah, I think you have to be a, re a realistic optimist versus sort of like a, a naive okay. optimist. Um, and so it's just like you, you want to think through sort of like, okay, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And just like, but also have sort of like the will to just like, whatever happens, you're going to figure it out. Right. And so just like have that and also think about the barriers you could run into. So you want to be thoughtful about this, but you know, you, you talked about sort of one of the questions I saw, I didn't totally answer the question about the, the rule I have my daughter, whatever book you want, I'll get for you. And so she's blitzed through. She's, she loves reading. I, even when she was a young baby, you know, like a one, two, three-year-old. Um, read her in bed. Like, it's just like one of those things that was really important to me. Books really mattered to me. That was the highlight of the day for me when she was young, of just like being able to like read children's books. We have tons of children's books. Um, you know, even up until she's like age seven or eight, like love reading to her. It's just, that was the, really the highlight of my day. And I think that's one of the reasons she loves books. So now she's being homeschooled. She reads tons of books. Like it's like two or three a week. It's absolutely awesome. My mom was an English teacher and I grew up in a very similar environment to you you know we didn't have a lot as a family but we had in a very 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 small house one room full to the brim literally full to the brim double stacked double hidden of books uh, and I do credit that as being a huge part of helping me you know all those things you talked about perspective 
learning unexpected kind of knowledges and insights uh, in ways that you kind of don't think about. It's not just kind of, you know, following a story along it. It's kind of a, a mesh of knowledge that you build, right? Yeah. Totally can relate to that. Uh, although I feel like I could talk to you about books for a very long time. Yeah, uh, for sure. I'd, I'd love to zoom back and talk about something that I've seen you speak about before and we touched on just before we went down the book rabbit hole, which is about the future of work. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I've seen startups grappling with, and I, I'm grappling with myself right now, we're a post-Series A startup, we're going from 20 people to 60 to 80, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. which feels just wild to me. But one of the things that we're dealing with is the changing generational preferences. You know, I think the pandemic has catalyzed a material change in the preferences that, you know, whether or not it's long-term, I think it's too early to say this experiment that we're conducting. But, you know, when you look at the experiences you've been through and some of the things we talked about, globalization, as well as the shift to the creator and entrepreneurial economy, and you look at your daughter's generation, you know, what do you think people building businesses for the future need to do to actually make them places that, you know, the next generation, you know, my daughter and your daughter will want to work at. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I think a lot about these academy companies and, and this is not a new thing or just even this idea of tour duties. And so one of the things where it's just like, I think as an early stage startup, you are not competing by like, here's all the money you're going to make because you're just not going to be able to compete against like the Googles and Facebooks or whatever. No. So it's the way I think about it, it's like, here's sort of like what you're going to learn. Like if we do this well, you potentially could make a lot more money, but actually it's really about like optimizing learning and making you where like, even if you stay here for one year, you are going to be way more valuable anywhere you go. You're going to be way smarter, way more experienced. Like the locus control, like you literally will have impact on this. Like whether it's positive or negative, that's another story, but you are going to have a massive impact on this business in ways where you'll make way more money at Facebook or Google or HP or any other big company, big tech company or whatever, but you're just not going to have as much impact. And so I do think and, and it's really you're selling the growth opportunity. So I tell my stars, it's like, don't try to compete with money. You compete by like, here's an awesome place to work and being very clear about the expectations. And I think too many times, a lot of like, you know, I tend to do anti-interviews. That's why a lot of, I get in trouble, like have gotten in trouble with like HR going like, no, you're not allowed to say this, but I'm very clear where it's like, here's the good, here's the bad of the company. And you just need to understand, right? Like, is this a fit? I'm not going to go and like sit there and go like, oh, everything's so awesome, right? And then you come here like, no, this is not, this is not what I expected. I think too many founders and too many HR people oversell the company and you just end up having really, really disappointed people or frankly, angry people who are just like, wait a minute, you, this is not what you sold me. No, you're right. And I think the worst thing about that is that that can become very toxic, right? If you don't manage that well. And it's funny you say that. We have at HX, I'm, I'm definitely ripping off Brian Chesky's idea of interviewing the first 50 hires that, that HX makes. And one of the things I do at the final stage is, is we have a deep conversation about actually why you want to join an early stage, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. fintech a high growth fintech startup. And actually I say, what do you have left to prove, you know, for yourself? What do you want to get from this and what do you want to give? Like super yeah. important yeah. to understand the equation of value there because otherwise yeah. it's a, it could be a miserable place, right? If, you, if you're not aligned. Yeah, it could be a miserable place. I was very fortunate where like, I literally am Forrest Gump of Silicon Valley where I'm like, my first start, Alibris was amazing. I met, I'm still friends with a lot of the people there, right? Same thing with Yahoo, still friends with a lot of people there. Even 500, like a lot of the people I worked with are gone, but like, I'm still super good friends with a lot of these folks and we still do business together. So I was just very lucky at sort of being at these companies and these points in time. And that to me, where like at every stage, it made me 
better of just all the things I learned, my network expanded dramatically. And I never went in going like, yeah, I'm gonna go build a network. Like I, you know, like I said, no thinking or planning. And I'm not sure that's the right way to think about it, or just like this transactional thinking where like, what am I going to get by going here? Um, I'm not sure that's a great way to think because I don't know if you can evaluate it in the right way where fundamentally I've made the most money sort of just like chasing the learning aspect, right? Like optimizing the learning and the opportunity aspect versus the any time where you can figure out directly clear ROI, then it's too obvious, right? If you think about it from that perspective, we're like, well, wait a minute, if I'm figuring this out, you know, I'm not that smart. If I'm figuring this out, other people figure this out and then that's a competitive role. And so I can tell you, um, like, you know, even at Yahoo, just like the people who joined Yahoo, like after 2005, 2006, when it became obvious, most of them did not make money. It was like joining in 2001, 2002, 2003, when we were in the middle of the dot-com bust Nobody wanted to join the like internet was like, whoa, internet's done. That was the consensus going against the consensus. It's like, wow, like those people made money. It can be very hard. I think in the job market, the kind of frothy, dislocated, ultra investable startup market, we're in here to explain that, right? Because there are lots of startups with unbelievable amounts of money right out there right now. Um, and there are a fair few without. And, and there are an unbelievable amount of like well-funded startups that are like poorly managed. <laughs> Let's be frank, right? Most of these folks and most of these founders have never run a company and are awful managers. And so I, I do think you have to be very thoughtful and do your homework um, and, and be very clear on both sides of these are my expectations, right? Like, you know, not be a jerk about it, but just, you know, getting on the same page. Your first couple hires, you know, I think your first hires for the first 100 to 2,000 hires are really important. That sets the tone of the, you know, the culture is really, really important. And so I don't think enough companies think about the culture, think about the fit, right? And it's something I, I do think a lot of companies have work to do. <laughs> On And I, I think it's like, it's not, the culture is not like, oh, we give you free breakfast and lunch and a foosball table. Like actually get rid of that crap. Like go and, you know, give them like free classes, like whatever it is, like what are the benefits of the things that actually really are important to them, right? Maybe it's therapy classes. I don't know. Or gym membership. Like what are those things that are actually really additive to their life that will also make them higher performers in the business? I feel good hearing those things because both mental health coaching and a very, very large training and development budget are two of the benefits that HX has given from a super early stage. Yeah, super important. The question we were asking is, what do we need to do to build businesses that the next generation want to work at? I definitely see the power of culture as, as HX grows. If you get lucky, like, uh, like I did, of hiring five or six people who are a very obvious culture fit at the beginning, you can sometimes not realize how important and hard it is to sustain that cultural fit. Yeah from the kind of super early stage, seed stage to the beyond growth? Yeah, I, I think the, the reality is that you have to think about this from day one and even the culture stuff, right? So I, I can tell you, if you're thinking about where it's like, I'm building a startup that's like family, like we're family, like that's a mistake. I actually think you have to think about this as like, we are a professional sports team. Uh, the family thing, like I, I'm, I'm an executive coach for, a, a, you know, like a, a it's a company that's doing probably 140 million in revenue. And they were like, we're a family. And I'm like, yeah, but that's why you're, you're like, you have all these like low, so they, they cleaned them out. So they've had to change the culture. That is hard to do like six, seven years in, right? It's like, no, you told us we're family. I'm like, cause the problem with family is like, oh, crazy uncle Joe, you know, was useful. Like, you know, back like in, you know, two, three years ago, but now crazy uncle Joe is just like, yeah, you don't even want to trot them out, right? He's a liability. Yeah, like, he's a, I told a liability <laughs> now. So, 
these are these are things that just like you get to be on the team while you perform. And the minute you don't perform, it's like you can't be on the team anymore. And by the way, that changes, right? Because we talked about the previous sort of stages of like, look, you know, I think I'm a high performer at sort of the commando stage. I think I'm a high performer at the infantry stage. Boy, like my last sort of like two years at Yahoo were like really challenging because I was up against a policeman and I got in tons of battles and fights and things. You know, my last year at 500 was a, frankly, a complete disaster because the policemen were there. And every stage is different. Going from series A to series B, going from series B to series C, going from C to like the path to being public, you need different people. Talking about lessons learned, and I'm really interested because you've had such a diverse kind of journey. Um, what's the biggest lesson you've learned from your journey in entrepreneurship that you want to pass on to your daughter? I think one of the mistakes I made, I value money way more than I value time. And I, I you know, like, it's funny, this is like startup dad, right? Where I'm like, I don't feel like I'm a great dad. I sacrifice so much of my, so my daughter, so for example, when I, when I was at Yahoo, she was she was born in 2009 and I was, you know, I was an executive growing a lot of the international business. And so I was literally, I missed probably for the first two years of her life, I probably missed 50% of her life. I, and I'll never get that back. Uh, and so you're like, you know, the key lesson, I don't have very many regrets in life, but I do think I get, and I think that's easier for guys and for ladies of just like, you just get so trapped in your career. And I think looking back in retrospect, uh, you know, I don't know if I would have been as further along my career if I didn't do this, right, or done as well in my career if I didn't do this. So I, it's something I wrestle with of just like, but I missed a lot of important things with my kid. I did try to get some of that when she was three and four because I'd take a sabbatical. But when I joined 500, I was all in. And I still think I missed a lot of her life. And so I'm trying to take a little bit more of a balance now that I'm sort of running my own show now. But she's 12 now, so she needs you less, Right. So it's just one of those things where it's like mm. when they do need you and I wasn't there, I'm like, I, I think I'm going to really go to my grave regretting that. And so it's something where I'm just like being much more thoughtful of just like sacrosanct time with, you know, with your family. Boy, you never get that back. Um, I, I don't know if that's a lesson, um, but it's just one of those things where I think a lot of especially dads who have young children are just like they're only going to be that age once. And I look back at these pictures of like, wow, she's how cute she was at three or four or five. And, you know, even little small things, I'd come home and she'd be like, daddy, daddy, daddy. And now you come home, she's like, what the hell do you watch, right? Like, you know, or, or if she even notices, right? Like she's literally in front of her screen and I'm like, hey, I'm home. And she's, she doesn't even know. She's like watching, watching her YouTube or like TikTok or whatever, right? So I'm like, you know, it's still good. Like I have a great relationship. My daughter's awesome. But like at the same time, I'm like, boy, <laughs> I think that relationship probably could have been better. <laughs> I think it is a really valuable lesson. I think this kind of time, money, false dichotomy that they're swappable is is one of those biggest things that can be really damaging, right? And I think, speaking really honestly to you, I already see, you know, when I have, when I know I'm doing a crappy job at home, it's because I'm letting things creep and I'm like, do you know what, there'll be a tomorrow. And you know, it's only ever today, right? And you don't know what tomorrow holds. And I, I'm not trying to be fatalistic at all, but I think it's very easy as a startup founder to go, do you know what? I'm going to build this great business and I'll have all the time in the world and I'll make it up to my family later, right? And I think there's no there's no later, right? You don't. It doesn't yeah. work that way. And I, I think a lot about this and, and it's just sort of one of those things where I'm just like, you never get that time back. And so I actually legitimately think that you can 
have it all now, right? Like, you know, the working from home piece, right? The remote stuff, big game changer. Mm. I also think sort of been good. You got the fundraising, the business clearly at some point. We're like, then now he's like, can you build an awesome team around you so you don't have to do everything, right? Where like there's, you, know, you have to coordinate a lot more, but can you build an awesome business with this team? It's not you now by yourself. And so how can you be smart about putting in the right processes or right, the people processes piece, like putting those things in, opens you up to have a lot more free time for thinking. And I also think a big part is, I think as a founder, something I wish as an you know, entrepreneur, investor, or whatever, something I wish I took on way earlier, which is being more present. Even when I was there, I was always thinking about business problems. You know, you're here, you're playing with my kid, and I'm like, huh, I need to sort this thing out. I'm not sure that was a good thing if I was present all the time, right? Or on my phone, trying to sort up some something, right? That now looking back was just not that important. Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely bang on. And I think the presence of phones and watches and an infinitude of devices that can remind you that you have a notification of which it's almost certainly going to be not important uh, uh, in the grand scheme of things, it, it makes this even harder. But you're absolutely right. You know, presence as much as time. You know, time spent while you're not present is arguably not time spent, is it? So super valuable lessons, I think. Yeah, and meditation. Take up meditation. Incredibly helpful. I wish I did it earlier. I, I only started about four or five years ago and game changer. Awesome stuff. That time has absolutely blasted by. That was one of the most entertaining, fascinating conversations we've had to date. Startup shout out. Can you tell us your startup shout out? You can have a couple. I know you're an investor. This company, I'm not an investor. It's a company called The Neo and met the founder last week. Just actually just had a call. Super smart. Um, the company out of Georgia, the, the country, not the, you know, you know, not the state. Very early stage, but they do like automate sort of API documentation. I, I mean, really great tech, strong team. And, um, and if you're an API company, like go check out The Neo. We have lots of APIs that we need to document. So they're on my list for sure. Marvin, look, that was an absolutely awesome episode. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How can we find out a little bit more about you? Where can we keep track on all things Marvin Liao? Um, you know, I'm on Twitter. So, you know, twitter.com slash Marvin Liao. Um, I have a newsletter called hardfork.substack.com. You know, and I'm on Medium as well, too. But, you know, Hard Fork is the Hard Fork Substack is sort of where, you know, I publish like three times a week. And it's actually personal therapy in the reading and writing. And I hope this helps people, too. Well, it certainly helped me today. And I really, really enjoyed having you on the show. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. It would really help us if you shared the show with a friend or colleague. So if you know someone who might find this podcast valuable, please pass it on to them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on Twitter at StartupDadsPod. 